We are continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. We've been working through it um, passage by passage. We're about halfway through. We're going to be working out of um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. So if you have a Bible, do feel free to turn there. Just while we're on the subject of uh, the church that we're going to be starting in Manchester, just to share some more news to encourage you and to celebrate together. Um, we in order to start the church, we need to find a house um, and buy a house, and we'll be starting in our living room, just as Grace Church did those number of years ago. Um, and we have sold our house here, um, so it was on the market. Yeah, oh, come on, all in if we're clapping, come on. <laughs> we're not doing half measures today. And also, some good news, we have found a house in Manchester, which we've had an offer accepted on, so we'll go again. <laughs> Um, so the house is just on the market for 48 hours or so. Um, it's sold real quick, and then a week after that, we found a place. So God's moving things on. Uh, we take it as a real encouragement from him. But as Lee said, please do continue to pray into this uh, if you want to pray specifically that that goes through all right. Um, but good, praise God, eh? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you've been um, tracking with the series so far, you'll know that the early stages of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, are Peter explaining who we now are in Christ and the work and what Christ has won for us through his life, his death and resurrection and how we are now completely new and it changes everything about us. We now find ourselves in a whole new place. And so because of that, that influences as we moved into chapter two, the beginning of end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, influences how we relate to one another in the community of believers, the church. And now he's starting to, as we began to look at last week, how we are to relate to the world at large, how we are to relate to society, how we as Christians are to behave um, and how, what our conduct is to be like um, in a place where most people are not believers. And Peter starts to get into this because, let's be honest, every single one of us can nail it on a Sunday if we really want to. We turn up, we can put our hands in the air at the right times in worship. We can look serious and intense in worship at the right point, very reflective. We can even nod when we accidentally catch the eye of the preacher on a Sunday morning, even if we're not quite sure what he's talking about. We can nod. And we can even let someone in front of us in the queue for coffee afterwards. Just one person, but we can do it. We can control our conduct in a, in a, in a nice measured way between the hour of 
11 o'clock and 12.15. But Peter's saying, yeah, that's great, but what about the rest of the week? What are you like then? And here, he starts talking about work. Don't be thrown too much by the idea of servants and masters. That was just a very common working arrangement in the first century. We won't get into too much because Peter uses the comments on how the servants and masters or the servant is to relate to his master in verses 18 to 20 to get our attention and to introduce the major theme of Christian living that he then wants to get into from verse 21 onwards. So we'll just look at that very briefly. Verse 18 again, and 3 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And essentially what Peter is saying here is that if you are a faithful, obedient follower of Jesus Christ in the workplace, what you can expect is to be overlooked, underappreciated, underpaid, and overworked. And your reward for doing a good, faithful, honest job in the workplace as a believer is that you will receive persecution, rejection, maybe even hatred. And while all of that is going on in the workplace, that guy that was hired as a temp, who is less qualified than you, less experienced than you, let's face it, less competent than you, is going to get promotion after promotion after promotion, and maybe even become your boss. And what are we supposed to do? As that all goes on, maybe spend your day plotting your revenge. (laughs) Or perhaps just storing up resentment slowly so that one day you'll just explode in the office. Or maybe you should just pack it in. Just think, oh, I'm just going to find a job where I'm at least appreciated. I'm not looking for a statue made in my honour or anything like that, but just somewhere where I am respected. And Peter says, no, not only will you be treated unfairly, but you are to keep doing a good job. You are to keep faithfully going. You're to keep at it. Don't fight back. Just endure while suffering unjustly. And if your gut reaction to that is, that is so unfair. That should not have to live like that. That is just unjust. It's not right. That is not how it should be. Then good. Peter has got you right where he wants you. This is how we should react, because it is outrageous. It doesn't make sense. It is offensive. And it would have been no less offensive or outrageous to the original hearers 2,000 years ago. But my hope and Peter's hope, as we move on to verse 21 and continue to explore all that's in this passage, is that as we look at that, we will see why this is not only a gracious thing in the eyes of God, but we can see it ourselves as a gracious thing. And so verse 21, as Peter moves on. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow 
in his footsteps. So Peter has just opened a can of worms and raised all of these questions and all of these objections. Surely this is not how we should have to be as Christians in the workplace. And yet in verse 21, he immediately follows it, not really with much of an interest in providing a logical, reasoned, robust response to why we should live like that. Instead, what he does is he just reaffirms what the goal of Christian living should be. And to understand this verse, we need to understand the word example that we find in it. Because immediately when the first century readers would have read this, they hear the word example, and they are immediately taken back to their childhood, where they are learning to write. And the word example is, the way that they would learn to, to write in, um, in ancient times is that they would be given this long board that had a single sentence that had every single letter of the Greek alphabet represented it. It's like the Greek equivalent of the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. They would have that, and then they would be given a massive piece of tracing paper, and then they would be given a red barrel handwriting pen that was around 2,000 years ago. If you didn't grow up in the UK, you missed out. And they would then trace identically over those words, and that is how they learned to write. And the board that they traced over was the example. And the task, of course, is to trace perfectly and accurately right over to create as close a representation of the original, of the example, as you possibly can. A close and accurate fit. And so when this verse says, for the, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, it's not just like one of many options, serving suggestion. This is the exact imprint that you should seek to trace your life over. Christ, our example, the one that we should try and fit our lives to, the one that we are aiming to, to be exactly like in every single way, in every single part of our lives. And he begins this by saying, for to this you have been called. This is your calling. You are called to be fit to this example. You are called to be like Christ, to map your life as closely as possible to Christ. Not as a means to an end. I don't know about you, maybe it's just a personal thing, but I think sometimes we can think that becoming more like Jesus in our lives is we must take on Jesus' likeness so that we can do this thing. Or we should aim for holiness so that we can do that thing. But what Peter is saying here is, no, we should aim for holiness, we should aim for Christ-likeness, full stop. That is the new life goal that we have been given. As we were called by Christ, as we have been one to him, as we have received all of the glorious benefits that we saw in chapter 1, as he called our name, what he called us to was a whole new life purpose of becoming like Christ. That is the new goal. That is the ultimate calling that we live for now. Not as a means to an end, but this is everything to Peter, that we might look like Jesus Christ. In 
In the Old Testament times, they would, some people who feared God would have given everything they had just to catch a glimpse of God, just to see a little bit of him, that would have been everything to them. And they would have given everything their family had and their family members themselves to have a moment where they would be able to be in the very presence of God, to get to share space with God. And so to understand and comprehend the the sheer privilege and the wonder and the glory that we now have, that we get to live our lives with an end goal of being like Christ, not only do we get to see God, which we do, which they would have given everything for, not only do we get to be with God and share his presence every single day, but he takes us on a step further and says, you also get to be like me. You know, the believers in Old Testament times would not be able to comprehend this at all. You get to be like God and the access that we now have and the opportunity that is made available to us. We get to look like the very perfection of humankind. We get to be perfect. We get to model ourselves on the one who was without blemish, who never got it wrong, who never made a mistake. But far more than that, we get to be like Christ was not just perfect man, but Christ is and was God. And so in fitting ourselves to his example, we get the joy of being like God. And what this means for us is that we must not settle for anything less. You know, you can spend hundreds of pounds on courses and books to self-improvement kind of things. They become a better you. You know, if my, the hope, the end goal of my life, the thing that I am living for is essentially just this, but maybe a little bit better, I'm not sure I'm that interested, to be honest. Like, is that, do you really just want to be yourself, but a little bit better? Do you just want a little bit of self-improvement? Because we rob ourselves if that is what our goal is, if that is the kind of thing we're living for. But what Christ is making available to us is that we do not have to settle. There is so much more for us in him that he is making perfection available to us, that we can go on a lifelong journey with an end goal of looking like him, of being the very perfection and fullness of him. That is what he's offering here. So how do we look like him? Well, in verse, the end of verse 21, he says, we have been left an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, we talk about following Jesus a lot. It's just kind of a throwaway phrase for us, isn't it? It's just following Jesus, we're following Jesus, just follow Jesus and everything will be fine. But we, it's kind of one of those phrases that just has been overused in church, perhaps. And maybe we've just kind of shaken all of the meaning out of it. And we never really stop to think, what does it actually mean for us to follow Jesus? Well, again, the original meaning of the word follow here is not, oh, I've just sort of vaguely set off in the same direction. But it is a strong meaning of placing your feet directly into the imprints that the one you're following have left. It means nothing less than to walk the walk that the one that you're following 
has gone on. And there's a, a commentator called Martin Hengel, and he says, for us to follow Jesus is the unconditional sharing of the master's destiny. I'm going to warn you, this is the bit where it is going to start getting a little bit uncomfortable for us. So you can brace yourself if you need to. Because Peter saw a lot of Jesus' life. He shared three years of Jesus' life on earth with him. And Peter saw the footprints of Jesus going in all sorts of different directions. And if he wanted to tell us what it was like to follow in the footprints of Jesus, there are all sorts of stories that he could share. If he wanted us to, if following Jesus looked like many things, he could have shared many different examples. He could have shared a story of when everybody seemed to love Jesus, when he healed the sick man or when he raised a man from the dead. He could have shared a story about when Jesus had a tiny little picnic and somehow expanded it to share with thousands of people and became an instant rock star and the crowds were following him and chanting his name and wanting to be with him and pressing in on him. He could have shared stories where it looked like Jesus was the man, where he was full of fame and full of glory. And yet, that is not for Peter what it looks like for us to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Verse 22 onwards. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Instead of Peter drawing on it times where Jesus was apparently famous and glorious during his time on earth, where he seemed like maybe he was living the rock star life, and for us to maybe think, wow, that's what living as a Christian is. Instead, Peter shares, says that to follow Jesus is nothing less than following him to the cross, following him into death, following him to his very darkest hour, as he shares some of the details of Christ's crucifixion. Where Jesus, although he had completely done good and was only innocent, as it says in verse 22, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was blameless. And yet how was he rewarded? He was mocked, he was beaten, he was spat at, he was reviled, he was belittled, and a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And Peter's saying, look, this is what the Christian life really is. This is what it looks like to get hold of this calling that you have. This is what it looks like to image your life on Jesus. This is what it looks like to look more and more like him. It is to walk in his footprints that lead to the cross. It is to do good. It is to be innocent and yet be rewarded with rejection, opposition, and maybe even humiliation, suffering, perhaps hatred. As our lives are fit more and more to the example that he has laid down, 
as we look more like him, we can expect that our lives will be, that we will be treated by the world the same way that he was treated by the world. Peter, I think, would state it quite strongly in that you cannot be an obedient, faithfully following liver of Christ and who he is without also enduring suffering at the hands of the world for who you are and for representing him and for identifying with him. This is the kind of message where you get very few amens for the stuff you're preaching. But Peter is sharing this to strengthen and encourage his readers because they already know this is exactly what their life is like. And I'm sure you already know as well, for times that you have stepped out, for times that you have taken a risk, for times where you've had a conversation with someone at work or you've talked to someone at the school gate about Jesus and you felt the sting of rejection, you felt turned away, you felt some form of persecution for being a follower of Jesus, actually you know that this is real. And what Peter is saying is this is what you're experiencing and this is what you will continue to experience as you grow in your faithfulness, as you grow in your desire to follow Jesus, as you continue to take greater and greater risks for his sake. This is what you can expect. And he's saying, look, I know you're tempted to pack it in. I know that when the patronising and uh, belittling jokes that your boss started up at work, where he had a little joke about what you do at the weekend, and he said that you were part of the God Squad. At that time, it was was okay when it started up. But actually, the weight of it and the continuation of it that you're having to endure is building up and up and up. And you're thinking, why am I facing this? Why am I going through this? Peter's saying, this is exactly why. This is what it is for. There's no accident you're going through this. It's not a mistake. It's not just completely random that you're facing this difficulty. This difficulty is actually given to you so that you can identify with Christ, so that you can know him better. This is, as hard as this is to hear and to understand, this is actually a gift for you, this suffering that you're facing. This is what Peter is saying when he's saying this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gift. It's the same word in the Greek. Actually, I mean, this is, doesn't make sense to us. But it is the only way that we can appreciate the cross. It's the only way that we can truly get to grips with the cost and the price of what Jesus did for us is that we get as close to it as we can. We walk that walk that he went for us. As we join with Christ in his suffering, it deepens our connection to Jesus. We get closer to him. We understand in increasing brightness some of the, the, the events that we read about of Good Friday where Jesus, Jesus was murdered. We see it clearer. We get it more. We are drawn closer and closer to him. We encounter him. Aren't these actually things that you want? A closeness with him, to draw nearer to him, to encounter him. Well, Peter's saying this is exactly... This is how we do it. It is through suffering that is where we meet him. Or certainly in our suffering, 
we meet him. And we then are moved, as we consider it and as we engage with it, to a new level of gratitude. Because we realise, as we get closer to the, the, the crucifixion ourselves, we realise that actually, although we are seeing some of it in our own lives, Christ's death was totally and utterly unique. That he went further than we would ever have to. He endured far more than we would ever be called into. The depths that he had to face were far deeper than we would. And he accomplished something that we never could. He did it to win our souls and now has given us the privilege of sharing with him and taking on some of his likeness through it. And it's as our gratitude for the cross increases and as our appreciation of it deepens and our connection to Christ and what he did goes further into our souls, the perspective that we have on our own suffering completely starts to shift. The way that we see what we are going through is completely different. We start to see that the persecution and the difficulty that we face for following Jesus is proof that we are on the right track for him. Now, this is huge. I need to make sure you are all with me for this, because this is a massive point that we must not miss. Our suffering for being faithful Christians is not a problem that we need to try and solve. It is not something that we must try and avoid at all costs. It's not something that should be run away from. I don't know if you, have you ever faced suffering for what, in whatever way, whether it's rejection or, or whatever, for being a Christian and just thought, oh, this must mean that my life has taken a wrong turn. I've gone the wrong way. I shouldn't have gone that path. In a few months' time, me and the team, we're going to go and start Revelation Church in Manchester. Here is something of how I expect it is going to go down. I am going to go to knock on many, many doors and have a conversation, something along the lines of, knock, 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 hello, my name's Duncan, we're starting a church, I know, weird, right, in our living room, yeah, would you like to come and join? And some people will say, sure, sounds a bit odd, but I'm in. They will be a very small handful. The vast majority of people, I think, will say, what do you mean? No, because I don't. I'm not coming with you to go and start a church in your living room. That will be conversation after conversation, rejection after rejection after rejection for being faithful and obedient to God. There might even be, for good measure, a bit of persecution and hatred thrown in there. Some people whose doors I knock on might say, you Christians are everything that's wrong with the world. If I see you again, you don't want to know what I'm going to do to you. And there is going to be a time as that rejection builds up and I feel the sting of some of that persecution where I am going to start to think, Maybe I shouldn't have come. Maybe I shouldn't have come this way. It feels like abandonment. It feels like I'm not in the right place. It feels like I am not seeing the progress that I wanted to see. It just feels like suffering. It feels like hardship. Surely this cannot be right. If you catch wind of me saying those things or feeling like that at all, you have my permission to bonk me on the head Point your finger at me and say, Duncan, sort your life out. Didn't you preach that? 
Because opposition, persecution, rejection, suffering in the name of Jesus for living out your faith are not signs that we have gone the wrong way. They are signs that you are right on track. You know, Jesus, he never put a foot wrong. He never made a wrong turn. He walked exactly the path that the sovereign God had him planned to walk. And do you know what his life looked like? Ever-increasing difficulty, suffering, persecution, all the way to the point of death. And so if we're facing difficulty and suffering, if you're sat alone at lunchtime in the, in the office and no one will sit with you and you're pretty sure it's because they're scared you're going to talk about Jesus with them, keep going, keep enduring. If you receive a warning at work for taking an ethical standpoint for something you spoke about in the classroom that you refuse to back down on, keep going, endure. If you essentially receive a bit of a demotion through reshuffling because at work you refuse to cave into the pressure that your boss was putting on you to turn a blind eye to the rules, to be dishonest, and you're now stuck in some rubbish job doing something day by day that you hate doing, keep going, keep enduring. This takes courage. This takes strength. But this is what we are called to do. And we can see them as, not as punishment, not as judgment, not as we are in the wrong place, but we can see them as marks that we are on the right track. This is how we must see our suffering. This is how we must see the punishment that the world gives us for living as followers of Jesus. And in this crucible of confusion and pain that we face, we endure exactly the same way that he endured. In verse 23, it says that when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ continued to give himself over to the Father, continued to keep in mind that day of judgment that was coming, the day where he would receive his reward. The day that's referred to in Hebrews 12 looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As the crown of thorns was put on his head, he endured the pain and the agony through thinking ahead to that day, the joy that was to come, and the good news is that we do not follow the footsteps of Christ into the grave and then just stop there. We do not end our journey with him in the grave. But we wear our crown of thorns so that one day we will see him face to face. He will look us in the eye and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done for enduring in that time. Well done for sticking at it when all of the world seemed to be against you. He will remove the crown of thorns from our head and he will hand to us instead the eternal crown of glory that is ours. Hallelujah. Praise God. Father, we just welcome your spirit. 
We thank you for these difficult-to-digest truths. None of us like pain. None of us enjoy suffering. I pray, Father, would you, by your Spirit, help us to live ever more obedient, faithful, risk-taking lives for you. That we wouldn't be fearful of pain and suffering for you. Because our minds would be set and our minds would be straight on it. That when it comes, it is but a mark that we are right in the sweet spot of your grace. Right in the direction you want us to go in. Help us to continue to believe this. Work by your spirit in our hearts. Give us the courage and the bravery to keep following you in the most isolated and alone seasons in our lives. Amen.